Hey everyone, back again. We finally arrived now to conclude Martin Heidegger's Being in Time. And for all those people, like I asked at one point, what do people do? Do you like listen to these every week when they come out? Or do you wait until all the episodes are out and then do them all at once? Which makes more sense. It totally makes more sense. And if I had the ability to just release all of these at once, I would. Because that'd be so... And then you could just listen to them all at once. But because I'm not a superhuman and I work entirely alone. <laughs> I don't have the ability to do that. So how, how are you doing this? Are you just going to, have you been listening all the way? I'd love to hear from you in any case, but you know, before jumping into it, before concluding this book, uh, do all the things I normally say. If you haven't already, subscribing, liking, sharing, all those things help a lot. Uh, and you can annoy your friends with this stuff. They might get a, get a real kick out of it. Maybe it'll make your relationship stronger. You, you, will, you, will, you will get stronger by sharing something that they love so much. I'm kidding. Yeah, so why don't we just jump right into the end here with chapters 5 and 6 from Division 2 of Martin Heidegger's Being and Time, which is it's nice to get to the end of this. It really is. Moving on to, to different stuff, and, you know, I doing these kind of long texts, is, it's brutal. You know, it's... A, of course, the, you know, the later episodes get no views and all that. It's not great for the algorithm. Like, I don't care about any of that. It's just like, God, I'm sick of talking about this book. It's been so long. Like, just in the recording, it's been two months. Uh, but then, you know, the months and months of research going in beforehand of reading the book, actually knowing what the hell I'm saying in the book. Like, it's so much work. So I'm eager to get beyond it. Anyways, chapter five temporality and historicity so it might seem like we've solved all the parts of Dasein. you know we we understand it in its totality its relationship to death in care and being attached to the world in temporality like we understand all of these things about Dasein, but we can hardly claim to have come to the end here to have said we, you know, we found the fundamental ontology of Dasein, or that we've understood it in its totality. All that we've really done so far, and I'm being very reductive, obviously, but what we've done so far is find human terms to describe what is non-human being. You know, that thing that extends, that goes beyond us, that is there before us, the driving impetus behind us even being here at all. Heidegger has just given us human words to try and approximate this thing. But maybe, you know, maybe his project was always doomed from the beginning. Because we can only go so far with language. Like this is, you know, this is Nietzsche's thing. Using language to describe moral truths. Like, how far can language really go in furnishing us with a proper understanding of anything that exists outside of language? Like, being... If, I mean, does anything exist outside of language? I don't know. Don't they? I don't know. Tell me. I, I have no idea. But it might seem, okay, we've, we haven't completed this project, spoiler alert, and we won't. And that is because, at least in part, that is because we have omitted one significant thing, and that is birth. We haven't really considered birth yet. We've considered death We've considered care, we've considered being with, being in, you know, like being in, but not like clothes in a closet, like kind of being 
being in in a different way, like being immersed in. But we have yet to really consider birth, its connection with death, and life's timeline. Now, along the continuum of life, only the present is is like is real to us. And so Dasein is, comp- is essentially comprised for me of successive presence. You never experience the future and you never experience the past. You only really experience the present, um, at least according to this. And it's, it's, I think it's a di- digestible idea. You are only ever in the present and everything is really past. Like my even having begun this conversation is in the past. Every word that I usher exists only in the past. You're never really fully understanding something the moment that it comes into existence. There's always implied a kind of distance between something existing and it's being comprehensible to you. This is just the nature of sensation itself because as humans, we don't experience something purely as it is. We experience a thing by what our senses tell us about it. If I say a word, your ear needs to hear it Your brain needs to then figure out what the hell just happened, what words they heard, make sense of those words, and then send the sense data back to like the ear to actually properly comprehend it into bodily movements where it's like, you know, you're having a conversation with someone and you're agreeing. That entire process implies that time has elapsed. Some amount of time has elapsed. So if I say the word now, it's already in the past. It is never experienced truly in the present, yet we always only ever experience in the present. How wild is that? Isn't that weird? It's kind of weird, right? In any case, being, Dasein, exists only for us in the present, which is just every moment we are alive as Dasein, and it is within us at those moments. And so the identity of Dasein, or Dasein's identity, is comprised of all of those successive presents, those successive moments in time. Now we should be clear that Dasein does not gain its identity by having lived and by having accumulated a number of different experiences to give it an identity. As we've set out so far, what we have implied is that there are innate qualities to Dasein, like its ability to adapt to the world. It must have an innate capacity to do that, to do so with care, to be attuned to death, to exist in time. These are all qualities of Dasein. And so while Dasein, at least in its outward expression in a living being, might alter and and change shape, The fundamental qualities of Dasein remain the same, because to even change shape as a human implies that we have undergone some kind of a death. We've said no to something that we once were and have become something new. That is our Dasein in action. But that only comes about because of Dasein's innate connection with the possibility of death. And so therefore, it's like, well, I have to try to do what's best for me in this moment, like what makes the most sense for me in my life? So we have to be clear that even though Dasein exists in these successive presence in these moments, it does not attain its identity, its essence through that. Dasein 
for, for Heidegger, in Heidegger's words, Dasein stretches itself along in such a way that its own being is constituted beforehand as this stretching along. So even in the ability to experience the world in successive moments implies that Dasein has that quality embedded within it from the get-go, innately. And by the way, if you hear a cat, uh, we've taken in a stray because there's this very friendly stray that comes around and we want to get it vaccinated, but we can only get a vet appointment later. And so we've had to like take the cat in just for a few hours so that it can get, you know, medicated and stuff. Uh, yeah. So if you hear a cat, don't, don't be alarmed. It's fine. In fact, it's more than fine. A little demon. So Dasein stretches itself along in such a way that its own being is constituted beforehand as this stretching along. So in the unity of thrownness, in Dasein's being thrown into the world, and the fleeting or else anticipatory being toward death, birth and death are therefore connected. So in Dasein's coming into the world and housing all of these innate qualities of things that it can do, what it is attuned to, how it adapts to the world, it does so along the continuum between birth and death. And as we already know, interestingly, like, Dasein undergoes many deaths in its life. It's programmed to die. And it does so by stretching itself out along a lifetime. Now, Dasein's stretchedness is what Heidegger calls its occurrence. Now, how do we, though, okay, how do we make sense of a unitary self? So we're implying here that Dasein it remains the same from birth to death. How do we make sense of that, though? Like, our, as humans, ourselves have changed. Our experiences affect us. We are shaped by the world. We are always undergoing changes. And yet, we always remain ourselves. And you can, I mean, this is something that you can pose to yourself. Do you think that you're the same person you are 10 years ago? Like, who you are? in your identity to yourself, you know, your, maybe your taste has changed, you watch different movies, or like, you have new friends, there are different things that move you in the world. But at the most deep level of who you are, your relationship to yourself, how has that remained the same if it has? I think that for many people, it will have remained the same, even if other things have changed, other qualities, other interests and stuff. So how do we make sense of that? Like, what is that thing? that remains the same within us through our whole lives. Now, it might not be Dasein, right? If I, if I did say that, I would be essentially making, uh, I would be trivializing Dasein. I'd be saying that it's the same as like people's tastes out in the world, essentially. When Dasein is really, it exists underneath all of that. It is the driving impetus that gives possibility to outward expressions in the world. It is what moves us. And it embraces movement itself. Dasein is always adapting to. It's always taking on the challenge of anything it confronts to adapt to it, to change it, to uh, do what it can with it. But at the level of ourselves, like the parts of us, like our taste and everything like that, this reveals that self-constancy is a mode of being of Dasein. Dasein tends toward self-constancy in some measure. It 
finds a way to be as it is, and then embraces that way. And this can come down to its fundamental ontological qualities like care, death, living in time, blah, 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 all those things. But I think also in those more trivial or dare I say superficial demonstrations of one's identity, your taste, your relationship to yourself, how you think, how you live in the world, these things will hit, you'll establish a kind of norm for yourself, what you like to do, how much of those things you like to do, and so on. And perhaps this comes from Dasein itself. Perhaps it actually originates from Dasein. So how can we make sense, though, of something like history? Because, look, like the entire world has gone through so many changes. How do we make sense of history, historical progress, and all of that? Dasein, as the being concerned with being and the being there, the there being, must have some stake in history, some stake, some... some attachment to history. But this isn't to say that Dasein is temporal because it is in history. Instead, it is because it is temporal that it can exist and exist historically. It is this very temporality that we have discovered alongside Dasein that even permits history to exist. Dasein as self-constancy is what makes historical progress possible. Because within history, we do not confront absolutely detached, unrelated, spontaneous events. Any history that we actually encounter, be it through textbook or storytelling or anything like that, we are confronting a narrative. And this narrative is one that is going to follow some basic guiding principles. It's going to have beginning and an ending, you know, good people and bad people at least, depending on what history books you read, good people and bad people, it's going to move successively and linearly through time. At least that's how history is often thought about. So in the sense of the world, like actual history in the world, real like historical events, not like abstract universal history or something like that, actual real-life history, Heidegger says that history is the specific occurrence of existing Dasein happening in time in such a way that the occurrency, which in being with one another, is past, and at the same time handed down and is still having an effect. So any moment that we actually engage with a history, any historical moment, is a moment of Dasein being with another. So every history is about a history of being in the world. And this is universal. This is, this is the case of any history at any time. It points back to a time in which being in the world had some kind of a bearing on what we know today. That is and how we exist today. This is what he means by handing down or handed down of that past. A past in which being was with one another and how that has a ripple effect through time. Now, interestingly, this, this definition, of course, it's anthropocentric. It depends upon a human subject to actually give that kind of narrative and to acknowledge the place of being and being with another in that progress. So we must ask, like, are animals capable of history? Do animals tell each other stories about events in the past? 
Surely if an animal is to warn, warns other animals about something that is about to happen to them, like if they see a beast of prey, then are they doing history? Who gets to decide how long something ago must have happened for it to be considered a history, to fall within the domain of history? Um, I mean, these are deeper questions than, not, not deeper as in like more sophisticated, but these are different questions than Heidegger is giving us here. But I mean, what is the state of the, the animal, for example, in this formula, this formulation, these formula, whatever. But what does it mean, though, to say that something is historical, like a farmer's plow or the Colosseum, like if you find an old farmer's plow? Technically, these things can still be used, right? Like if I find an old farmer's plow at my grandparents' barn, it is a historical item. The Colosseum as well is, a, is, is an historical item. Why do we say that they are objects of history? Like, the Colosseum could still be used, right? There's, there's no reason it shouldn't be. The farmer's plow could still be used. Like, if, of course, there's no reason it couldn't be. Heidegger says that something becomes historical, not because it has changed, but because the world has changed. In his words, that world is no longer is, or the world that no longer is. So it's not that the Colosseum has changed at all. It's that our world has changed not to permit the Colosseum to be useful in its form. And so therefore, when an object of a certain kind of status or usability uh, outlives its usability in that world, then it becomes an object of history. So for history to be born then means that worlds have changed. It's not just the passage of time. To say so would be to vulgarize uh, Heidegger's conception of time here. Of course, that's not the case. History comes about when a world has changed and objects within that world, people within that world, no longer hold the same place that they once did. And they attain a status of having contributed to our current world and hence form part of the story of our world. So this reveals in that it demands world changing and Dasein is intimately connected to world building, therefore world changing, this reveals that Dasein is what is primarily historical. Dasein is what gives the possibility to history itself. Dasein is innately historical in that as resolute in itself, it recognizes its identity in the face of eventual death. Because that, that's what resoluteness means, if you don't remember. It is about Dasein's awareness of its eventual death. And it's like, okay, I can confront this. What am I going to do about it now? What life am I going to live to be the best life for me in the face of this eventuality? So this identity is shaped by previous Dasein's that have existed in and shape, shaped worlds leading up to the present. Dasein both repeats and begins newness. And this is Dasein's authentic historicity. It is that driving force behind historical movement. So the world has a history, or more correctly, it has histories. Specifically, world history, which refers to two things. It, it refers primarily to the occurrence of world in its essential existent unity with Dasein, and secondly, it refers to the inner-worldly occurrence of what is at hand and objectively present 
And since interworldly beings are always discovered with the factually existent world. World history is objectively there for Dasein in that it is rooted in care in meeting the world and others, adapting to it and others. And so historiography as science of history comes later, which is just, you know, history would come later. Like, just like time is not to be confused with temporality, historicity is not to be confused with, like, history or the thing that Dasein is intimately attached to and motivates development for in shaping worlds and changing worlds and people's and Dasein's place within those worlds. So by contrast, inauthentic history is the history of the they, and it is only concerned with the present and looks at the past through the prism of the present. Authentic history sees history as a return of what is possible and knows that a possibility returns only when existence is open for it fatefully, in the moment, in resolute repetition. So it's not, inauthentic history is just like, oh, what's past is past. We just have to see about how it's affected us today and that's it. Like we have no obligation to history. We have no actual ability to reflect upon the um, driving force behind historical movements and transformations, etc. It's just like, well, what's in the past, then that's it. And then we can look forward to the future. But as we've already established in our discussion of time, is that all of these things collapse into one with Dasein. There's not like a clear split between future, past, and present. These things influence one another. The future is determined by the past as the past is influenced by the future, just as the present is influenced by the future. So historiography doesn't start from the present and look back on the past as a compilation of just like facts, as though we can just engage with the world as, as facts. Like we don't. We engage with the world as stories. We engage with the world as being part of that world. And even in the present, no one's walking around being like, let me compile all the facts I can to have the most true understanding of the world. Like we all exist in the world. We interpret the world purely subjectively. Like no one, I, I say, if you, do, if you are walking around and you're like, I'm going to count exactly how many steps I've walked to school. Uh, I'm going to count exactly how many cars I've passed. I'm going to find all the truth about everything. <laughs> like, I mean, what a life to live. So history or historiography doesn't look at the past as just like a compilation of facts. Rather, it only looks upon those things that have been the expression of previous Daseins in their existential choices. So to look at the artifacts of the past is to look at previous Daseins self-projection into the future. When you look at a monument in history, every object was created with the future in mind. No object was created to then to not exist, right? Because in its being created, it is already projected into the future. And because everything that we make, every tool that we use to make those things are connected with the process of world building and Dasein is connected with world building, so too then is Dasein going to be connected and found within those objects that we make that point to the future in a resoluteness toward death. This is the objective ground. This is the objective ground that unites seemingly subjective historical efforts and observations. 
This is what allows us to draw connections between things, because otherwise, if we encountered history as just facts, we wouldn't be able to make sense of it. We'd be overloaded with data. But we give it a kind of narrative. We give it a history that makes sense to us. We give it a story that makes sense to us. How, I mean, the good big question to ask is like, whose histories are told? Like, is the history that most people are taught in Canada or in the United States, in a European nation, anywhere, is that history reflective of what should be history or just a history that reflects certain dominant interests? I mean, this has always got to be questioned. And how does that reveal the extent to which that Dasein itself can be swayed by power? If it can, maybe it can't. I think that the resounding Heideggerian response will be, oh, you just don't get it. Dasein exists beneath power. It is what even gives power its face. Uh, to which I'd say, like, well, I guess we can always speculate. Now, this is the objective ground that unites all historical events. Now, also, we universalize historiography in its attention to temporality along the horizon of care that guides all Daseins before it. So when we look at history, we're looking at moments in which care was exhibited in the world. Something was being done for a reason. And care can even be, we can understand that, of even horrible historical events. People were doing things with care in the sense that they were trying to accomplish something in the world. They were trying to do something in the world. So that's why, I mean, from the get-go, the term care is not, you know, you aren't supposed to equate it with the, like, benevolency or actually caring for people. It's about just doing something in the world guided by some kind of a purpose to be a part of that world. And so we can understand horrible events through that lens as well. Now he concludes this chapter by going on a big detour through Delithi and York, but it would it would just take too long to present, like these differing perspectives on time and history and stuff. And I go and read it, but it, it just feels so unrelated and so unnecessary to get into. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's my, it's my choice. If someone wants to leave a comment explaining exactly what he says there, I would welcome you to. I will pin it. Everyone will see. It'll be, it'll be amazing. But for now, that moves us into chapter six, temporality and within timeness as the origin of the vulgar concept of time. So the bad concept of time. Time is just like past, present, future. So time as we know it, like with clocks, calendars, for example, this originates from Dasein's temporal temporalization, from Dasein's original temporalization. But how does this happen? How do we get clocks and these artificial constructions of time from an original temporalization or Dasein's original temporalization? Well, the vulgar idea of time demands leveling down of primordial time. It means making primordial time like digestible to the day, to everyday audiences who live in the world, in a world that has been organized, has organized time in certain ways. And different societies, different worlds organize time differently, and that's fine. These are all similar expressions of a, of a primary primordial time because nobody exists outside of time as far as i know maybe somebody does i'd be very curious to talk to them about it though 
Now to understand this, we have to understand Hegel, but we're going to get into that a little later. Um, but we have to understand how Hegel's view of spirit and its connection to time. And as a kind of preamble, Heidegger says that Hegel gives us a preliminary point of departure, but it doesn't take us far enough to fully grasp the fundamental ontology of Dasein. So we're going to return to that later, but just as a just so you know it's coming. So while we don't have an innate sense of clock time, like you have to be taught how to read a clock or to read a calendar, we house the capacity to perceive past, present, and the future. And this is time's dateability for uh, Heidegger. It's dateability. So we do have this capacity to acknowledge, and this is, this is Kant all the way, like we have an innate, no one ever sits you down as a child and is like, there's this thing called time. Did you know that you have to exist in time? Like we, we just know how to do it. And it completely shapes our lives. As kids, we, we exist in it no less, even if we don't have the language to describe it. So when we move through the world, we don't perceive our existence as a compilation of moments. Like that'd be so silly. You don't, it's not like every single moment has the same weight for you and you just experience life as this compilation of random events and moments. Instead, we experience the world as comprised of select moments expanded into a span. Like, a class you go to is like an, a span, a duration of time. Your walk to school, like, that's like an event that takes up like one unitary understanding in your mind. It's not like your walk to school is actually like, oh, I'm going to walk to the end of the driveway and then I'm going to walk down the, uh, across every single crack in the sidewalk and then walk across this, like, you don't, you, you don't think of it that way. I, at least I hope you don't. You know, you just set yourself, okay, I'm doing, I'm walking to school. Um, I just kind of put myself on autopilot and I'm just going to get there. And that's that. So you kind of shut off your brain. And then this whole event, walking to school, that's what you tell the people, right? You don't, you don't tell them like, oh, I walked to the end of the driveway and then all these other things. You don't say, I don't know, I open my door, I brush my teeth. You don't say that. It's all a part of that one thing that we've given a meaning to. So this is why Dasein can lose time or be subject to the temporal they, the inauthentic time. So we are grounded in care, and so we adapt to our world's rhythms. So my walk to school is like, it's an entirely its own thing. Now this is public time. Because it's not like walking to school is some natural conception, some th thing that Dasein naturally has an understanding of. This is public time and reveals Dasein's being within time. We do this with days as we all exist under the same sky. Like we organize days, we organize everything else, like according to what makes sense to us in our world. And so different people will organize their world differently, different conceptions of time they'll use different conceptions of time. So his view of the clock is that it stands in for Dasein's natural temporality, its primordial temporality, its original temporality. This is why we can easily adopt it as a representation of time, the clock. I mean, we can adopt it easily, even though it objectively has nothing to do at all with time. Like the clock doesn't give us an accurate reflection of time. The clock is just what we've all all have agreed on represents time so that we can organize our world in order for that world to then exist temporally at least yeah 
Yeah, yeah. So it is temporality's becoming time that opens the door for space in that time and dateability, or dating, to date things, spatializes time. This is his point, essentially his critique of Kant, is that Kant overplays the place of space, where, if you recall, Heidegger's like, the process of creating a world means to de-distance, to de-spatialize, to bring things near. And it is only when, within time, that spaces are organized, or time is split up in different chunks, that suddenly space can become a factor, and people can start to create worlds around that space in the organization of time, or the original temporality, and then it's becoming vulgar in a kind of public understanding of time through clocks and calendars and metrometers and all this, all this good stuff. And so, right, this is his issue with Kant. I did a whole episode just on Heidegger's critique of Kant, if you want that. So time is not purely psychical, like in our minds. It is physical, in that time initially shows itself in the sky for Heidegger. Because for Kant, time is like part of the sensible objects of the intuition in our minds. I think that's the term, whatever it's been, whatever. Uh, it is within us. We have this innate capacity to grasp time. So Kant is like, I don't know if it's in my mind or if it's out there in the world. I don't know how a bat experiences time. Like, I, I don't know. We'll never know. But Heidegger's like, it's actually physical because we have like the organization of the sky or the way the sky moves that gives us a pretty clear idea of a cyclical thing that can be submitted to time. So, but then he says that time is prior to all subjectivity and objectivity, which I struggled with because on the one hand, he's trying to have his, he's really trying to have his cake and eat it too. He's trying to be like, Kant's wrong because Kant is indecisive about time's place in the in the world and how time is like shaped by the world yet there's this innate temporality similarly with space heidegger's like kant just says the same thing about space there's a kind of space that might be out there we all experience it blah 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 heidegger's like no 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 that's not that's not what it means to actually live you are not living in space you know you're trying to bring space you're trying to erase space to actually live but when he says that time is prior to all subjectivity and objectivity, it's like, wait, okay, is it part of the sky? What's going on here? What is time then, other than the transcendental ability to connect and unite variations in space? Well, at least that's what, I mean, isn't that what time is? Because I'm, I'm more on the Kant side of this dilemma. Uh, but, I mean, isn't time just the ability to make sense of variations in space? Like, we see successive events that we're able to perceive at a certain frame rate, at least to use video game jargon, and then we imbue that with the status of giving us a narrative in itself in a kind of progression, and we make sense of it that way through like our world and the, most of the entertainment we consume is entertainment that follows along a progression. Like, the, I mean, this is how we understand our... I'm, whatever. I'm At this point, it's just me talking, and you're not here for that. Heidegger suggests that the vulgar understanding of time, as viewing time as a series of nows, is plagued by the belief in the infinite, because these nows have no end. So this erases care and world time. The they is more than content to just see things as being part of successive moments, and that's just the end of the story. 
when there's actually a whole lot more to it in the process of world building. We do not just encounter events just as events in themselves. And we just, we then we'd be totally overloaded with things. We only remember things that make sense to us in our world and to ourselves in that world. If we made, if we held every single event with the same weight, then my every single word I utter would be as significant as every single great work of art. Like, it, and it would hold as much weight in our minds as, as anything else. But that's not how we work as humans, because we would be overloaded with data. We are very, we are very well equipped to actually discern what is valuable to us to remember, to hold on to, to contribute to our world history than other things. Of course, like, power has to be considered here. Like, whose stories are going to be amplified and then people will remember to contribute to history going uh, forward, history going forward to the future, whatever. But now he turns to Hegel. Turns to Hegel who says that space opens up its own identification in its exclusion. What the hell is that? What does that mean? So for us to see space, we must turn from space to things in space and therefore not space. So this is going to come back to his idea, Hegel's idea of negating the negation. In order to see space, it's actually an impossible thing. No one can see space. You see space by things existing in it and giving you a sense of like distance between things because of relative proximate sizes to you and your vantage point. If you just see an absolutely expanse, uh, empty expanse of space, like you went into the universe and you there was an endless expanse of space without any stars or anything, it would be like you were looking at a sheet of paper, a black sheet of paper right in front of your eyes. You would have no, I mean, the space itself may not even exist at all, like as far as you know. So in order to actually see space, you have to see objects in space to make sense of space's spaciness. Does that make sense? Maybe that doesn't. What? Space is spaciness. So Hegel's point is to say that it's, there's a kind of paradox here. In order to actually see space, you have to turn from it to objects within space. So this is space's negation of such things. And those things is negation of space, but we find space's truth in its negation. So we must negate this as a negation, negate the negation. No, no longer then is this a negation. It's a kind of actualization coming out of this negation. It is we find space in turning away from it. So, but these are still space and in space, or these things are still in space and in space. And so we must negate the negation to see space, as I've already said. So to perform such a negation means looking and being in time. Therefore, like Heidegger, Hegel suggests space is in time. So for Hegel, time too earns its identity in what it is not, that is, in variations in space, as I said earlier. We don't actually see time. I mean, what does time look like? But no one, no one knows. No one knows. Similarly, spirit, from Hegel, earns its identity in its movement. And so the successive phases that change it as negation, because it's like, well, we're trying to find what is true of spirit in the world. Well, what we know about it is that it's always changing which might be like, okay, well, it has no identity, but we can negate that, that idea 
and actually be like, no, its identity is that it always changes. So we must negate this negation to find that spirit, spirit is progress or is change. And so for Hegel, spirit then exists in time, not in space, or well, primarily in time, and then space comes out of time. Now, Heidegger doesn't go so far as to agree with Hegel here. He just sees this as a Hegel's offered an important contribution to this discussion, but says that, or he says that Hegel's union of spirit and time gives us hope in understanding time's connection with being. So Heidegger just focuses on the factical thrownness of Dasein temporally without the bells and whistles of spirit. Because spirit is like, I mean, in Hegel's term, it's it has holds a lot of weight and it's incredibly abstract. Way too much so for Heidegger, like for what Heidegger's doing here. Heidegger wants to, you know, find within the world evidence of this thing called Dasein and being. Something like spirit is way too abstract. And as though we've made no progress at all then, he concludes his book by asking, how is the mode of the temporalization of temporality to be interpreted? Is there a way leading from primordial time to the meaning of being? Does time itself reveal itself as the horizon of being? And that's where it ends. He, that's where it ends. And it's like, what? He, it was never solved. You know, we did, the mystery is never solved. We are given all of these different qualities of Dasein. And I think that they're all correct. And that's what we can really take from this book. It doesn't solve the thing he meant to solve. And I've heard different explanations for this. He was forced to write a book much longer than he wanted to for his PhD thesis. He got bored of it, blah, 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 whatever. Um, yeah, but it, I mean, really great stuff. I, if you've made it this far, you're a real trooper. I'm happy you did. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you think. Is there anything I got wrong? Anything I omitted that I should have included? I'd love to know. Um, yeah, it's been a journey. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, on that note, I'll catch you next time. Take care.